0: Chapter fourteen of the spoilers by Rex Beach This Lieberbox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter fourteen A Midnight Messenger. My dear Helen, don't you realize that my official position carries with it a certain social obligation which it is our duty to discharge? I suppose so, Uncle Arthur, but I would much rather stay at home. "'Tut-tut. Go and have a good time. "'Dancing doesn't appeal to me any more. I left that sort of thing back home. Now, if you would only come along—' "'No, I'm too busy. I must work to-night, and I'm not in a mood for such things anyhow.' "'You're not well,' his niece said. "'I have noticed it for weeks. Is it hard work, or are you truly ill? You're nervous, you don't eat, you're growing positively gaunt. Why—' you're getting wrinkles like an old man.' She rose from her seat at the breakfast table and went to him, smoothing his silvered head with affection. He took her cool hand and pressed it to his cheek while the worry that haunted him habitually of late gave way to a smile. "'It's work, little girl, hard and thankless work, that's all. This country is intended for young men and I'm too far along.' His eyes grew grave again, and he squeezed her fingers nervously as though at the thought. "'It's a terrible country, this. I—I I wish we had never seen it.' "'Don't say that,' Helen cried spiritedly. "'Why, it's glorious. Think of the honor. You're a United States judge and the first one to come here. You're making history. You're building a state. People will read about you.' She stooped and kissed him, but he seemed to flinch beneath her caress of course i'll go if you think i'd better she said though i'm not fond of Alaskan society some of the women are nice but the others she shrugged her dainty shoulders they talk scandal all the time one would think that a great clean fresh vigorous country like this would broaden the women as it broadens the men but it doesn't i'll tell mcnamara to call for you at nine o'clock said the judge as he arose so later in the day she prepared her long unused finery to such good purpose that when her escort called for her that evening he believed her the loveliest of women. Upon their arrival at the hotel he regarded her with a fresh access of pride, for the function proved to bear little resemblance to a mining-camp party. The women wore handsome gowns and every man was in evening dress. The wide hall ran the length of the hotel and was flanked with boxes, while its floor was like polished glass, and its walls effectively decorated. "'Oh, how lovely!' exclaimed Helen, as she first caught sight of it. "'It's just like home.' "'I've seen quick-rising cities before,' he said, "'but nothing like this. Still, if these Northerners can build a railroad in a month and a city in a summer, why shouldn't they have symphony orchestras and Louis Kahn's ballrooms?' "'I know you're a splendid dancer.' she said. You shall be my and jury. I'll sign this card as often as I dare without the certainty of violence at the hands of these young men, and the rest of the time I'll smoke in the lobby. I don't care to dance with anyone but you. After the first waltz he left her surrounded by partners and made his way out of the ballroom. This was his first relaxation since landing in the north. It was well not to become a dull boy, he mused, And as he chewed his cigar, he pictured with an odd thrill, quite unusual with him, that slender, grey eyed girl with her coiled mass of hair, her ivory shoulders, and merry smile. He saw her float past to the measure of a two-step, and caught himself resenting the thought of another man's enjoyment of the girl's charms, even for an instant. Hold on, Alec, he muttered, you're too old a bird to lose your head. However, he was waiting for her before the time for their next dance she seemed to have lost a part of her gaiety. "'What's the matter? Aren't you enjoying yourself?' "'Oh, yes,' she returned brightly. "'I'm having a delightful time.' When he came for his third dance she was more distraught than ever. As he led her to a seat they passed a group of women, among whom were Miss Champion and others whom he knew to be wives of men prominent in the town. He had seen some of them at tea in Judge Stillman's house, and therefore was astonished when they returned his greeting, but ignored Helen. She shrank slightly and he realized that there was something wrong. He could not guess what. Affairs of men he could cope with, but the subtleties of women were out of his realm. What ails those people? Have they offended you? I don't know what it is. I have spoken to them, but they cut me. Cut you? he exclaimed. Yes. Her voice trembled, but she held her head high. IT SEEMS AS THOUGH ALL THE WOMEN IN Nome WERE HERE AND IN LEAGUE TO IGNORE ME. IT DAZES ME. I DO NOT UNDERSTAND. HAS ANYBODY SAID ANYTHING TO YOU? HE INQUIRED FIERCELY. ANY MAN, I MEAN. NO, NO, THE MEN ARE KIND. IT'S THE WOMEN. COME, WE'LL GO HOME. INDEED WE WILL NOT, SHE SAID PROUDLY. I SHALL STAY AND FACE IT OUT. I HAVE DONE NOTHING TO RUN AWAY FROM, AND I INTEND TO FIND OUT WHAT IS THE MATTER. When he had surrendered her at the beginning of the next dance, McNamara sought for some acquaintance whom he might question. Most of the men in Nome either hated or feared him, but he espied one that he thought suited his purpose and led him into a corner. "'I want you to answer a question. No beating about the bush. Understand? I'm blunt and I want you to be.' "'All right.' "'Your wife has been entertained at Miss Chester's house. I've seen her there.' "'Tonight she refuses to speak to the girl. She cut her dead, and I want to know what it's about.' "'How should I know?' "'If you don't know, I'll ask you to find out.' The other shook his head amusedly, at which McNamara flared up. "'I say you will, and you'll make your wife apologize before she leaves this hall, too, or you'll answer to me man to man. I won't stand to have a girl like Miss Chester cold-decked by a bunch of mining camp swells, and that goes as it lies.' In his excitement, McNamara reverted to his Western idiom. The other did not reply at once, for it is embarrassing to deal with a person who disregards the conventions utterly, and at the same time has the inclination and force to compel obedience. The boss's reputation had gone abroad. Well, er, I know about it in a general way, but of course I don't go much on such things. You'd better let it drop. Go on. There has been a lot of talk among the ladies about Well, er, the fact is, it's that young Glenister. Mrs. Champion had the next stateroom to them, er, him, I should say, on the way up from the States, and she saw things. Now, as far as I'm concerned, a girl can do what she pleases, but Mrs. Champion has her own ideas of propriety. From what my wife could learn, there's some truth to the story, too, so you can't blame her." Without a word, McNamara could have explained the gossip and made this man put his wife right forcing through her an elucidation of the silly affair in such a way as to spare Helen's feelings and cover the busy-tongued magpies with confusion. Yet he hesitated. It is a wise skipper who trims his sails to every breeze. He thanked his informant and left him. Entering the lobby he saw the girl hurrying towards him. Take me away, quick, I want to go home. You've changed your mind? Yes, let us go, she panted and when they were outside she walked so rapidly that he had difficulty in keeping pace with her. She was silent and he knew better than to question, but when they arrived at her house he entered, took off his overcoat, and turned up the light in the tiny parlor. She flung her wraps over a chair, storming back and forth like a little fury. Her eyes were starry with tears of anger, her face was flushed, her hands worked nervously. He leaned against the mantel, watching her through his cigar smoke. "'You needn't tell me,' he said at length. "'I know all about it.' "'I am glad you do. I never could repeat what they said. Oh, it was brutal!' Her voice caught, and she bit her lip. "'What made me ask them? Why didn't I keep still?' "'After you left I went to those women and faced them. Oh, but they were brutal. Yet yeah, why should I care?' She stamped her slippered foot. "'I shall have to kill that man some day,' he said, flicking his cigar ashes into the grate. "'What man?' She stood still and looked at him. "'Glenister, of course. If I had thought the story would ever reach you, I'd have shut him up long ago.' "'It didn't come from him,' she cried hot with indignation. "'He's a gentleman. It's that cat, Mrs. Champion.' He shrugged his shoulders the slightest bit, but it was eloquent and she noted it. "'Oh, I don't mean that he did it intentionally. He's too decent a chap for that, but anybody's tongue will wag to a beautiful girl.' My lady, Malat, is a jealous trick. Malat! Who is she? Helen questioned curiously. He seemed surprised. I thought everyone knew who she is. It's just as well that you don't. I am sure Mr. Glenister would not talk of me. There was a pause. Who is Miss Malotte? He studied for a moment while she watched him. What a splendid figure he made in his evening clothes. The cozy room with its shaded lights enhanced his size and strength and rugged outlines. In his eyes was that admiration which women live for. He lifted his bold handsome face and met her gaze. I had rather leave that for you to find out, for I'm not much at scandal. I have something more important to tell you. It's the most important thing I have ever said to you, Helen." It was the first time he had used that name and she began to tremble while her eyes sought the door in a panic. She had expected this moment and yet was not ready. "'Not tonight. Don't say it now,' she managed to articulate. "'Yes, this is a good time. If you can't answer, I'll come back tomorrow. I want you to be my wife. I want to give you everything the world offers, and I want to make you happy, girl. There'll be no gossip hereafter. I'll shield you from everything unpleasant, and if there is anything you want in life, I'll lay it at your feet. I can do it. He lifted his massive arms and in the set of his strong square face was the promise that she should have whatever she craved if mortal man could give it to her. Love, protection, position, adoration. She stammered uncertainly till the humiliation and chagrin she had suffered this night swept over her again. This town, this crude half-born mining camp, had turned against her, misjudged her cruelly. The women were envious clacking scandal-mongers, all of them, who would ostracize her and make her life in the Northland a misery, make her an outcast with nothing to sustain her but her own solitary pride. She could picture her future clearly, piteously, and see herself standing alone, vilified, harassed in a thousand cutting ways, yet unable to run away or to explain. She would have to stay and face it, for her life was bound up here during the next few years or so or as long as her uncle remained a judge. This man would free her. He loved her. He offered her everything. He was bigger than all the rest combined. They were his playthings and they knew it. She was not sure that she loved him, but his magnetism was overpowering and her admiration intense. No other man she had ever known compared with him, except Glenister. Bah! The beast! He had insulted her at first. He wronged her now. "'Will you be my wife, Helen?' the man repeated softly. She dropped her head and he strode forward to take her in his arms, then stopped listening. Someone ran up on the porch and hammered loudly at the door. McNamara scowled, walked into the hall, and flung the portal open, disclosing Struth. "'Hello, McNamara. Been looking all over for you. There's the deuce to pay.' Helen sighed with relief and gathered up her cloak while the hum of their voices reached her indistinctly. She was given plenty of time to regain her composure before they appeared. When they did, the politician spoke sourly. "'I've been called to the mines and I must go at once.' "'You bet. It may be too late now. The news came an hour ago, but I couldn't find you,' said Struve. "'Your horses saddled at the office. Better not wait to change your clothes.' "'You say Voorhees has gone with twenty deputies, eh? That's good.' You stay here and find out all you can. I telephoned out to the creek for the boys to arm themselves and throw out pickets. If you hurry you can get there in time. It's only midnight now.' "'What is the trouble?' Miss Chester inquired, anxiously. "'There's a plot on to attack the mines tonight,' answered the lawyer. "'The other side are trying to seize them, and there's apt to be a fight.' "'You mustn't go out there,' she cried aghast. "'There will be bloodshed.' "'That's just why I must go,' said McNamara. "'I'll come back in the morning, though.' and I'd like to see you alone. Good night." There was a strange new light in his eyes as he left her. For one unversed in woman's ways he played the game surprisingly well, and as he hurried towards his office he smiled grimly into the darkness. "'She'll answer me to-morrow.' "'Thank you, Mr. Glenister,' he said to himself. Helen questioned Struve at length, but gained nothing more than that secret Service men had been at work for weeks and had to-day unearthed the fact that vigilantes had been formed. They had heard enough to make them think the mines would be jumped again tonight, and so had given the alarm. "'Have you hired spies?' she asked incredulously. "'Sure, we had to. The other people shadowed us, and it's come to a point where it's life or death to one side or the other. I told McNamara we'd have bloodshed before we were through when he first outlined the scheme—I mean, when the trouble began.' She wrung her hands. That's what Uncle feared before we left Seattle. That's why I took the risks I did in bringing you those papers. I thought you got them in time to avoid all this. Struve laughed a bit, eyeing her curiously. Does Uncle Arthur know about this? She continued. No, we don't let him know anything more than necessary. He's not a strong man. Yes, yes, he's not well. Again the lawyer smiled. Who is behind this vigilante movement? We think it is Glenister and his New Mexican bandit partner at least they got the crowd together. She was silent for a time. "'I suppose they really think they own those mines?' undoubtedly. "'But they don't, do they?' Somehow this question had recurred to her insistently of late, for things were constantly happening which showed there was more back of this great fierce struggle than she knew. It was impossible that injustice had been done the mine owners, and yet scattered talk reached her which was puzzling. When she strove to follow it up, her acquaintances adroitly changed the subject. She was baffled on every side. The three local newspapers upheld the court. She read them carefully and was more at sea than ever. There was a disturbing undercurrent of alarm and unrest that caused her to feel insecure, as though standing on hollow ground. Yes, this whole disturbance is caused by those two. Only for them we'd be all right. "'Who is Miss Malat?' He answered promptly. "'The handsomest woman in the North, and the most dangerous.' "'In what way? Who is she?' "'It's hard to say who or what she is. She's different from other women. She came to Dawson in the early days. Just came. We don't know how, whence, or why, and we never found out. We woke up one morning and there she was. By night we were all jealous, and in a week we were most of us driveling idiots. It might have been the mystery or perhaps the competition.' That was the day when a dance-hall girl could make a homestake in a winter or marry a millionaire in a month, but she never bothered. She toiled not, neither did she spin on the wax floors, yet Solomon in all his glory would have looked like a tramp beside her. You say she is dangerous? Well, there was the young nobleman in the winter of ninety-eight, Dane, I think, fine family and all that, big yellow-haired boy. He wanted to marry her, but a faro-dealer shot him. Then there was Rock, of the Mounted Police, the finest officer in the service. He was cashiered. She knew he was going to pot for her, but she didn't seem to care. And there were others. Yet with it all she is the most generous person and the most tender-hearted. Why, she has fed every stew-bum on the Yukon, and there isn't a busted prospector in the country who wouldn't swear by her, for she has grub-staked dozens of them. I was horribly in love with her myself. Yes, she's dangerous all right. "'to everybody but Glenister.' "'What do you mean?' "'She has been across the Yukon to nurse a man with scurvy, and coming back she caught in the spring break-up. I wasn't there, but it seems this Glenister got her ashore somehow when nobody else would tackle the job. They were carried five miles downstream in the ice-pack before he succeeded.' "'What happened then?' "'She fell in love with him, of course.' "'And he worshipped her as madly as all the rest of you, I suppose,' she said scornfully. "'That's the peculiar part. She hypnotized him at first, but he ran away, and I didn't hear of him again till I came back to Nome. She followed him, finally, and last week evened up her score. She paid him back for saving her.' "'I haven't heard about it.' He detailed the story of the gambling episode at the Northern Saloon and concluded, "'I'd like to have seen that turn, for they say the excitement was terrific.' She was keeping cases and at the finish slammed her casekeeper shut and declared the bet off because she made a mistake. Of course they couldn't dispute her, and she stuck to it. One of the bystanders told me she lied, though. "'So, in addition to his other vices, Mr. Glenister is a reckless gambler, is he?' said Helen with heart. "'I am proud to be indebted to such a character. Truly this country breeds wonderful species.' "'There's where you're wrong,' Struve chuckled. He's never been known to bet before. Oh, I'm tired of these contradictions, she cried angrily. Saloons, gambling halls, scandals, adventuresses. I hate it. I hate it. Why did I ever come here? Those things are part of every new country. They were about all we had till this year. But it is women like you that we fellows need, Miss Helen. You can help us a lot. She did not like the way he was looking at her, and remembered that her uncle was upstairs and asleep. I must ask you to excuse me now, for it's late and I am very tired." The clock showed half-past twelve, so, after letting him out, she extinguished the light and dragged herself wearily up to her room. She removed her outer garments and threw over her bare shoulders a negligee of many flounces and bewildering clinging looseness. As she took down her heavy braids the story of Cherry Malotte returned to her tormentingly. So Glenister had saved her life also at risk of his own. What a very gallant cavalier he was, to be sure! He should bear a coat of arms, a dragon, an armed knight, and a fainting maiden. "'I succor ladies in distress, handsome ones,' should be the motto on his shield. "'The handsomest woman in the North,' had said." She raised her eyes to the glass and made a mouth at the petulant tired reflection there. She pictured Glenister leaping from flow to flow with the hungry river surging and snapping at his feet while the cheers of the crowd on shore gave heart to the girl crouching out there. She could see him snatch her up and fight his way back to safety over the plunging ice cakes with death dragging at his heels. What a strong embrace he had! At this she blushed and realized with a shock that while she was mooning that very man might be fighting hand to hand in the darkness of a mountain gorge with the man she was going to marry. A moment later someone mounted the front steps below and knocked sharply. Truly this was a night of alarms! Would people never cease coming? She was worn out, but at the thought of the tragedy abroad and the sick old man sleeping nearby she lit a candle and slipped downstairs to avoid disturbing him. Doubtless it was some message from McNamara, she thought, as she unchained the door. As she opened it she fell back amazed while it swung wide and the candle flame flickered and sputtered in the night air. Roy Glenister stood there, grim and determined his soft white stetson pulled low, his trousers tucked into tan half-boots in his hand, a Winchester rifle. Beneath his corduroy coat she saw a loose cartridge-belt, yellow with shells, and the nickeled flash of a revolver. Without invitation he strode across the threshold, closing the door behind him. "'Miss Chester, you and the judge must dress quickly and come with me.' I don't understand. The vigilantes are on their way here to hang him. Come with me to my house where I can protect you. She laid a trembling hand on her bosom and the color died out of her face. Then at a slight noise above they both looked up to see Judge Stillman leaning far over the banister. He had wrapped himself in a dressing gown and now gripped the rail convulsively while his features were blanched to the color of putty and his eyes were wide with terror though puffed and swollen from sleep. His lips moved in a vain endeavor to speak. End of Chapter 14. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.